which is the wedding at Cana. But the miracles in Scripture, to give you some background, they're either called mighty works or signs or signs and wonders. And in Scripture, the word wonders is always accompanied by the word signs. You will never see the word wonders by itself. The reason, as one commentator put it, Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power, but but still less neat tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. In other words, Jesus just did not do a miracle to simply display his power. The miracles he performed had a far greater significance It was to give insight into his purpose and or his person. And in essence, a miracle is an event in which God makes an exception to the natural order of things. It's an event in which God supersedes natural laws for the purpose of demonstrating his glory and or validating his message. And it can't be explained by what is normal, by what we know. And Jesus just didn't do miracles to say, look at what I can do. Jesus did miracles to reveal who he was and to convey the message of why he came. And in the Gospels, there are 36 recorded miracles of Jesus. There are 37 if you count the resurrection as a miracle. And John actually wrote in John 20, 30 to 31 at the end of his Gospel, he wrote, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so you may believe Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. John said there's so many more things that Jesus did that I can't write them all down. And by doing these miracles, by doing these signs and wonders, Jesus desired for people to see him for who he was, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. And there are four different types of miracles that Jesus performed. There's the miracles of healing. There's the miracle of exorcisms or casting out demons. There's the miracle of resurrections. And there's the miracles of being in control over nature. And in order to believe in the miracles of God, there are some very important presuppositions that we have to make. Now that word presuppositions bring back some bad memories for me from engineering. Because in engineering, before you solve a problem, we always had to write out our presuppositions of what we knew was true before we solved the problem. And our professors did that so we would have the information we needed to solve the problem. Now, it didn't always mean I solved the problem. I didn't solve many of them. But but at least the presuppositions were there. It gave you insight into the problem and gave you a foundation of how to solve the problem. And if you don't believe in God, If you don't believe in the Word of God, you can't believe in the miracles of God. However, there are those who say they believe there is a God, but they deny the miracles of God as being part of God's Word. One such man was Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson wrote a religious work called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, commonly referred to as the Jefferson Bible. And what Jefferson did is he did a condensed composition of scripture of the gospels but he excluded all miracles of Jesus he excluded all mentions of the supernatural including the sections of the gospels that contain the resurrection and most other miracles and he excluded passages that portrayed Jesus as divine by doing so he denied Jesus as God 
By doing so, he denied the Trinity. By doing so, he denied that one could only be saved by grace through faith. You see, Thomas Jefferson, he liked the morals of Jesus. He liked the philosophy of Jesus. He liked the wisdom of Jesus, but he did not believe in the person of Jesus. And when you deny any part of the Word of God, you deny all of the Word of God. But if you believe in God, if you believe that He is all-powerful and He is personal and involved in His creation, then it must follow that He did, He can, and He does perform miracles. You see, the same Jesus who acted with power and purpose in the Gospels is the same Jesus who still acts with power and purpose today. The same Jesus in the Gospels is the same Jesus we serve today. There is no difference. And every time Jesus did something or does something that can't be explained, our faith should be strengthened and our response should be, this is something only Jesus can do. So today we're going to look at the first miracle which Jesus did, which was the launching of his public ministry. It's the miracle of turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. It's the miracle of Jesus saving the best for last. But before we get into the miracle, let me give you some background. In John 1, John, the beloved disciple of Jesus and the writer of this gospel, makes several significant claims about Christ. He states in John 1, 1 through 14, that Jesus was the Word, that Jesus was with God, and that everything was created by Him. And then he goes on to say that He became flesh and dwelt among us. And it is only through Jesus that one can become a child of God. He also records that John the Baptist, who came to prepare the way of the Lord, recognizes Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And because of John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus, four men started following Jesus and became his disciples. And the last part of chapter 1, we see that Andrew became a disciple of Jesus. Then Andrew went and got Simon Peter. And then Philip became a follower of Jesus. And Philip went and found Nathanael and caused him to believe in the name of Jesus. And this context is important as we come to chapter 2 of the Gospel of John. Let's look at John chapter 2. Let's read verses 1 and 2 for right now. This is the first sign, meaning this is the first indication of who Jesus was. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. Let's stop there for just a moment. You see, here we find a wedding that has taken place. Mary, Jesus' mother, was there, and that Jesus and his disciples were invited as well, the four disciples who just started following Jesus. Now, we have a PowerPoint slide. I want to show you where Cana is located in regards to what we know about Israel. You see the wedding church in Kafar Cana, and then you see the new site five miles north called Kerbet Cana. The original place where they thought this wedding occurred was in Kafarkana, which is about four miles north of Nazareth. However, in 1998, they began excavation in Kerbatkana, and they discovered that that is the, probably the actual place of where the wedding at Cana took place, about nine miles north of Nazareth, just to the west of the Sea of Galilee. And if you remember, the Sea of Galilee is where Jesus did much of his ministry. So that is where this wedding is take place. Also, Mary is only mentioned twice in the Gospel of John. Jesus, the, I mean, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is mentioned twice. Here in this passage, 
and in John 19. And interestingly enough, on both, both occasions, John never refers to Mary by her name. He simply calls her the mother of Jesus. And this is probably to not get her confused with all the other Marys in Scripture. But John writes that this wedding took place on the third day. He's counting the third day from the last event mentioned in John chapter 1. And that event was the call of Nathanael to be a disciple of Jesus at no other place than Cana. Because Cana was Nathanael's hometown. And according to the Mishnah, which is the first major written collection of Jewish oral traditions and is known as the Oral Torah, the wedding would take place on a Wednesday if the bride was a virgin, and it would take place on Thursday if she was a widow. And what would happen at night, the groom and his friends carrying torches for light would make their way in a procession to the bride's home. And they would give speeches and wish the bride and groom well before the bride and groom would make a procession back to the groom's house where this wedding banquet was held. Now weddings in Jewish culture are just a little bit different than weddings are today. They just were not an afternoon wedding like we have today. A wedding ceremony today is 20 to 30 minutes. If I'm doing it, it's 45 to an hour. So just know what you're getting into if you ask me to do your wedding. So, but then it's followed by a two to three hour reception. But in the Jewish culture, the wedding celebration lasted an entire week. And the groom was the center of the attention, not the bride. The groom and his family were responsible for feeding all the wedding guests for an entire week. Can you imagine having the responsibility of paying for all these guests for an entire week for food and drink and lodging? Those of you who have girls are thinking, what changed? Why can't it be that way today? As the average wedding costs $30,000. You're thinking, can we go back to that? I'm thinking, thank God that changed. I have two boys, so I'm feeling pretty good. But because of Mary's involvement with the food and drink, this wedding is probably that of a close relative or, or that of a friend. And at some point after Jesus arrived, we have a developing situation that's taken place that's about to wreck this wedding if something's not done. Let's look at John chapter 3 and read through verse 11 where this miracle takes place. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone jars have been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them, so they filled them to the brim. He said to them, draw some out, take it to the chief servant. And they did. When the chief servant tasted the water after it become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him, Everybody sets out the fine wine first. Then after people have drunk freely, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So what happened? Mary became aware of something that could become very embarrassing to the groom and his family. The wine is gone. There is no more wine to be found, and this isn't grape juice. This is wine, and in biblical times, wine was typically 5 to 20% alcohol. It was diluted to, to one-third to one-tenth of its fermented strength, unless it's called strong drink in Scripture, which means it's 100% alcohol. But for wine to run out, it was a big deal. You ever been to a restaurant, and they told you, well, we don't have that. 
You order something else, and they say, well, we don't have that. And they keep telling you, you're out, you're out, you're out, and you finally just say, well, tell me what you do have. That's kind of what's happening here. They're about to run out of wine, and there's not much they can do. And what was happening at this wedding was about to be embarrassing. And it needed to be taken care of before the guests found out. Because this would damage the reputation of the host. The guests would start leaving. And get this, in some cases, they could sue if there was not enough food and drink at the wedding banquet. They could literally sue the groom's family because they ran out of wine and food. Now, at our wedding reception, Joni and I, we we thought we had run out of food because when we left our wedding reception, we were looking so forward to partaking of some of the food that we had. We had chicken wings and sausage balls and all kinds of wonderful finger foods. And we were looking to get into our bed and breakfast and to have something to eat. We didn't have a chance to eat during the reception. We opened our basket. We had two chicken wings, two sausage balls, and one piece of cake. We thought they'd run out of food. Come to find out there was plenty of food left. So whoever packed our basket really didn't want us to eat much. You know what we did? We went to CeCe's on our wedding night. We were hungry. Now, we didn't go dressed in our our wedding attire. We wish we would have. But we got dressed and went to CeCe's to compensate for the food that we thought we have that we didn't have. But Mary knew the best thing she could do in such a time as this was to call upon Jesus. Mary was hoping that Jesus would do something about this situation. She knew better than anyone else about the miraculous birth of Jesus. She knew of the miraculous birth of John the Baptist. She knew that her son Jesus was the son of God, was the Messiah, and she knew if anybody can fix the situation, Jesus can. There is something else happening here that we need to be aware of. Mary may not only be going to Jesus because she knows he can fix the problem, but she almost may be thinking it's time for Jesus to let the world know that he is the Messiah. You see, John the Baptist already made the claim that he's the Messiah. Jesus already by this time had disciples following him. And Mary knew this and perhaps she thought it was time for Jesus to reveal his identity to the world and make it known to the world that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. And how did Mary think Jesus would make himself known? By performing a miracle, by providing a sign. Mary's thinking, what better time than now for Jesus to reveal himself? We need wine and we need it now. But look at Jesus' response to his mother in verse 4. What, is this con- what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Woo! In our culture, this would be very disrespectful. I cannot imagine what would have happened if I would have looked at my mom and called her woman. I would not be here today. And my life would have ended right then and there if I would have ever looked at my mom and called her woman. It would not have gone well. But in that culture, it was not mean. It was not rude. It was not disrespectful. It is a matter of fact. The closest English translation we could come to is, Ma'am, what do you mean, we? In other words, not my problem. You're the wedding coordinator here. You're the one in helping with the food and wine. Why don't you figure it out? 
And this is how Je- but this is how Jesus addressed Mary on the cross in John 19, 26. The same word when Jesus saw his mother and disciple there whom he loved. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. So this is not a disrespectful, disrespectful term. It is a matter-of-fact term. And in John 4, Jesus is telling his mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? Why trouble me with that? What do you and I have in common? You see, by Jesus' response, he is letting his mother know whom he loved dearly. But their relationship has now changed. And things are now different. You know, there was a show, many of you remember it, The Lone Ranger. There was a situation where, that the Lone Ranger and Tonto, Tonto faced. They were surrounded by a tribe of Indians. And as you know, Tonto was an Indian. And the Lone Ranger looked and he turned to Tonto and he said, I think we're in trouble. Tonto replies, what do you mean we? You see, in that moment, Tonto distanced himself from the Lone Ranger. He didn't want any part of that situation. In that moment, his relationship with the Lone Ranger had changed. And Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, is declaring freedom from any kind of human influence or agenda. He is beginning to fulfill the purpose of his coming and his responsibility to the Father and the fulfillment of his mission has now become his number one priority. (coughs) His only concern is not his mother's will or anyone else's will. His primary concern is doing the will of the Father who sent him. And this must have been difficult for Mary. She raised Jesus and now things have changed. And now, like everyone else, his own mother had to approach him as the promised Messiah, as a sinner in need of a Savior. And Jesus is letting it be known that nothing, not even family relationships, was important as his divine mission. So what's the application? The first point is this. Jesus came to do the Father's will, not our will. Jesus did not come to earth and dwell among us to do what man wanted him to do. Jesus came to do the one thing that he was called to do, to accomplish the will of the Father. He had a single-minded focus. Nothing else mattered. Jesus is making it clear that he came to obey God and not people. He did not leave heaven to please man. Otherwise, he would have never offered his life as a sacrifice for our sin. If he would have obeyed man, he would have just healed people from sickness and diseases. He would have overthrown Rome. He would have simply provided food in times of need. And if he had done that, we would still be lost without hope and be hopeless. Thank God Jesus submitted to the will of God and pleased God and followed the Father's plan for his life. And just like Jesus submitted to the will of God and pleased God, we are to do the same. We are to submit to God. We are to follow his plan for our lives. We are to do what he wants us to do and not what anybody else wants us to do. Our number one priority is to follow Jesus. Our number one priority is to please him and no one else. And we need to follow the example of Jesus in doing the Father's will. But notice what else Jesus said in the second part of that verse. After he called her woman, Jesus asked, It says, my hour has not yet come. When Jesus said, my time or my hour has not yet come, he is saying when the time that he would be glorified has not yet come. 
What hour is he referring to? He's referring to the hour of suffering culminating with his crucifixion and resurrection. And this hour does not happen until the Gentiles come on the scene in John 12, 20. And when the Gentiles come on the scene in John 12, 20, from this point on, Jesus is on the brink of death. His hour is said to arrive. John 13, 1 says this. This is with Jesus at the his last time with the disciples before he went to the garden of Gethsemane in the upper room he says before the Passover festival Jesus knew his hour had come to depart from this world to the father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end this is the hour he's talking about the hour has now come for him to go to the cross and give his life and then John 17 1 as he's concluding his time with his disciples before he's betrayed says this, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to the heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so the Son may glorify you. Thank God Jesus was willing for the hour to come. Thank God that Jesus was willing to become sin for us so that we might be forgiven of our sin and become his righteousness. Thank God he was willing to humble himself and be obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the reason Jesus was born. This was the purpose of his life. He was born to die so you and I can live. And he came for a far greater purpose than even his mother realized or the disciples realized at the time. But Mary at that moment, she wanted Jesus to show everyone who he was. She wanted Jesus to let the world know that he was the Messiah And she wanted it done then. She wanted it done on her timetable. And what Mary wanted Jesus to do, however, was not in line with with what Jesus came to do. Mary has asked Jesus to do something about the wine running out. And Jesus made it clear through his response, the hour of suffering through the crucifixion and the hour of being glorified through the resurrection is not here yet. You see, Mary was trying to dictate to Jesus when he should start revealing himself as the Son of God. And Jesus was making it clear that she does not control when he reveals himself. And in essence, Jesus is letting it be known that no one but the Father tells him what to do and when to do it. And Mary is not offended by Jesus' response. Mary doesn't argue with him. Mary doesn't plead with him. She doesn't beg him. But look what she does do in verse 5. She says, do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. She simply turns to the servants after Jesus had responded to her and says, do what he tells you to do. And then she leaves. You know what she did? She left the request in the hands of Jesus and tells him to deal with it as he sees fit. Point number two. Here's the application. Jesus works according to the Father's schedule, not our schedule. How often do we try to dictate to God what to do and when to do it? And we want to tell God what should happen in our lives and when it should happen instead of allowing God to work in our lives how he wants to and when he wants to. And we may tell God things like, God, I need you to do this now. God, I can't wait. But notice Mary didn't try to fix the problem herself. Mary didn't go to anyone else to see if they could help. Mary was confident that Jesus could do something and would do something, and she didn't tell Jesus how to fix it. She simply submitted to Jesus' way of doing things because she recognized Jesus was more than her son.
she recognized Jesus was the son of God and she went to Jesus she left the problem with Jesus why? because she trusted Jesus she knew he was the only one who could help her she knew that he was the only hope of getting more wine you see when we're faced with a problem no matter how big or small we need to follow the example of Mary We need to realize the best place we can leave our problems is in the hands of Jesus. And we need to submit our plans and our problems to Jesus. And we need to allow him to work things out according to his plans and his purpose. The best thing we can do when we have a problem is call upon Jesus and leave it with him. 1 Peter 5, 7, it says, Cast all your cares upon God because he cares for you. When you have a problem, the first thing you need to do is turn to Jesus. You don't need to go anywhere else or go to anyone else. Your first thing is you need to run to Jesus like Mary did. And when we leave our problem with Jesus, it shows we trust him to work in our lives and we trust him to work in his timing and not our timing. We trust that we believe that he knows what is best. And since Jesus knows what is best, we need to keep in mind that just because Jesus can fix our problems, doesn't mean he will fix it at least not the way we want him to or when we want him to I think of Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12 6 through 10 scripture says Paul had a thorn in the flesh we don't know what it was but it says he asked God three times to remove that thorn and every time God refused and finally God said my grace is sufficient for you you were made strong in your weakness because of my power Sometimes that's how God works in our lives. Sometimes the solution to our problem may be God telling us, you don't need to worry because my grace is sufficient. And I've got this. Maybe today you need to hear those words from God. God telling you, my grace is sufficient. Maybe you've been asking God to fix a problem and he hasn't done it the way you wanted to. Or when you wanted him to. Maybe you're still waiting. And maybe he's telling you like he told Paul, my grace is is sufficient but even Jesus said what he did look at what happens even after Jesus told Mary woman don't bother me with this my hour has not yet come look at what he did it says in verse 6 now six stone jars have been set there for Jewish purification each contained 20 or 30 gallons fill the jars with water Jesus told them so they filled them to the brim He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. You know, Mary was right. Jesus could do something and Jesus did do something. He performed his first miracle. He turned water into wine. Scripture says there are six stone water jars and each jar held 20 or 30 gallons of water. And Scripture also says that these jars were used for Jewish purification, meaning they would have been placed at the entryway of the feast so people could, could wash their hands. It was also the stone jars that were used for the washing of utensils. And these stone jars had to be made out of stone if they were going to be ceremonially pure. And Jesus instructs the servants to fill the jars to the brim with water. Now one gallon of water weighs 8.3 pounds at room temperature. So each stone jar, which was heavy in and of itself, would hold anywhere from 166 pounds to 249 pounds of water. That is a lot of water. 
So how did these servants fill these up? They had to take smaller bowls or smaller pots. They had to take it to the well where the water was drawn from. And they would have to bring it and fill the pots. Now it is possible some of these pots already contained some water. Because scripture doesn't say they ran out of water. It says they ran out of wine. So it's possible that some of these stone jars had some water in them anyway for the, for the ceremonial cleansings. But I don't think these servants had any idea what was about to take place. Because when these jars are completely filled with water, <coughs> Jesus tells them to draw some out. And then he says, take it to the chief servant who was the master of the banquet. Here's an interesting thing you know, I want you to think about. What water is drawn out? And studying this this week, my view has been completely changed. I've heard this story all my life. But when I read what I read this week, I was blown away. Many scholars believe that Jesus was not instructing the servants to draw the water from the stone jars. See, that's the traditional view, that Jesus turned the water into wine that was in the stone jars. But many scholars believe that is not what happened. That was not the water they were to take to the chief servant. But they were to draw out some more water from the well where the water was initially drawn and take that to the chief servant. Now, why do many scholars hold this view? It goes to the Greek verb entileo. And leo implies the literal drawing of water from a well. If you go to John 4, 7, Jesus' experience, encounter with the woman at the well, look at what Scripture says. Uses the same word, John 4, 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Where is she getting the water? From the well. And then you look at John 4, 15, the same word is used again. Sir, the woman said to him, give me the water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. So the reason many scholars hold the view that it was the water that they were drawing from the well and not the waters in the jars that were turned to wine is because of the use of this Greek verb, and Leo, which means to literally draw from a well. So what water was turned into wine? I don't think it was the water in jars, but the water that was drawn from the well after the jars were filled. And I'll get back to that in a minute because that's very important that they were filled. But think about this. If the water in the well was turned to wine, there's now an endless supply of wine. There's no chance of them ever running out of wine. If that water in the well where they were drawing the water from was turned to wine. Also, something else that is significant. The filling of the jars to the brim indicates that the appointed time for the ceremonial observances of the Jewish law had run its full course. They had completely fulfilled their purpose that nothing of the old order remained to be accomplished. It symbolizes the fact that Jesus, because he is perfect, had come to fulfill the law. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, I come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it or destroy it. So in essence, these water jars being filled with water represented the old covenant. It represented the law, the Jewish customs, and the wine represented the new covenant of grace, the new covenant of mercy that could only come about through the sacrifice of Jesus and the shedding of his blood. And also, as we know, this wine is symbolic of the blood of Jesus and the new covenant. Because when we take the Lord's Supper, what does the wine represent? It represents the blood of Jesus. Matthew 26, 27 to 29, when Jesus was having the Last Supper with the disciples, says he took the cup, gave them thanks, offered it to them, saying, 
Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I'll not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. D.A. Carson, who's a biblical scholar and professor emeritus at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, said this. He said the new covenant symbolized by the wine could not be drawn from jars intimately connected with ceremonial purification. In other words, he's saying Jesus couldn't put the new in the old. And as Jesus said in Mark 2.22, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. You see, when Jesus turned the water into wine, he transformed one substance into another. He did it without any words. He did it without any outward signs. He didn't wave a wand. He didn't wave his hands. He didn't say abracadabra. He did it to demonstrate that the rituals associated with the old covenant are giving away to something better. Jesus is ushering in the new covenant. You see, up to this point, the servants were drawing water from the well to fill the jars used for ceremonial washings. Now they are to draw water that has been turned to wine for the feast that now represents the messianic, messianic banquet that is to come, also known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Isaiah 25, 6, Isaiah wrote about the marriage supper of the Lamb, this messianic banquet. He says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. You see, in the end times, there will be a great feast. In the end times, there will be a marriage celebration. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, will be the bridegroom. And we will be the bride. Jesus is also aware of what the prophets predicted when the Messiah would come. The prophets said that wine would flow freely. Amos 9, 12 to 14 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman, the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. This wedding, this miracle, this wine is a symbol. It's a sign of the presence of the Messiah and what is to come. You know what Jesus is doing in this miracle? He's revealing who he is. And as Jesus is identified as the bridegroom in John 3, 27 through 30, when his hour does come, he will supply all the wine that is needed for the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, because Jesus has come, things have changed. And this is one of the main lessons of this miracle. And what's the application? Jesus did not come to reform us, but to radically transform us. Jesus didn't come to reform us, but to transform us. There's a difference in a reformation, in a renovation, in a transformation. You see, Jesus didn't come to make us better. He came to make us different. And the transformation that takes place in our lives, when we give our lives to Jesus, it can't be accomplished by what we do. It can't be accomplished by simply obeying the law. It can't be accomplished by the good works that we do. We can't change ourselves. Change only takes place in our lives by what Jesus did on the cross through his suffering and his sacrifice. I love what, I've said this before, but it just came to mind again. Louis Giglio said this about the gospel. It doesn't make bad people good. It brings dead people to life. See, that's a transformation. It's not a renovation or a reformation. It's a transformation, bringing the dead to life, not making bad what's good. 
And just like Jesus, the Creator radically changed His creation. He miraculously turned water into wine. The Creator, Jesus, can radically change us. You know what the greatest miracle that will ever happen in your life is the miracle of salvation. The greatest miracle that will occur in your life is the miracle of salvation. 1 Corinthians 5, 17. Scripture says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are not reformed by the blood of Jesus. You are transformed. You are a new creation. And if you want to change, if you want your life to be different, it only happens through Christ. You can't change yourself. Only Jesus can change you. And Jesus can do for you what no one else can do for you. And when you give your life to him and trust him, he changes you. And he gives you an unlimited supply of his love, of his grace, of his forgiveness, of his mercy, and of his love. And Jesus will will give us what we need and exactly when we need it. Just like he did at the wedding. Jesus will give us what we need and sometimes more than we need exactly when we need it. Now, regardless of which view you take, whether the water in the jars was turned to wine or the water in the well was turned to wine, it does not change the miracle or its purpose. Either way, the water drawn from the well was turned to wine indicated a change was taking place. Look what happened next. It says, When the chief servant tasted the water after it became wine, he did not know where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him, Everybody sets out the fine wine first, and after people have drunk freely the inferior but you have kept the fine wine until now so what did Jesus do after he turned the water into wine he instructed the servants to take the water he had turned to wine and give it to the chief servant the master of the banquet can you imagine what might be going through the minds of these servants as they do what Jesus asked they're thinking Jesus you want us to do what because they know if they serve only water to the chief servant to the one in charge of the banquet they could lose their job but you know what they did they obeyed Jesus they did exactly as they were told they followed his instructions and as the chief servant who has no idea where this drink came from he tasted the drink that the servants brought to him and he called over the groom and recall the bridegroom is the one who's responsible for the wine and the food And the servants have no idea what the chief servant is about to say. I can imagine the tension that's happening in their lives, going through their heads, the suspense, wondering, what is the chief servant going to say when he tastes this wine that was just water? What's going to happen? They're thinking, what is he going to say? Is it going to be good? Is it going to be bad? Are we still going to have a job? You ever had anyone taste something you made and you have no idea what they're thinking after they taste it? They don't say much. They don't know what you're thinking, whether it's good or bad, and you want them just to say something so you'll know. I'm sure that's that's what's happening in the minds of these servants. But what the chief servant says is mind-blowing. He just didn't say this wine is good. He said, you've saved the best for last. You have now come up with the finest of wine. Usually what would happen at these weddings, they would serve the good wine first and then bring out the the bad wine later after everyone had too much to drink and couldn't tell the difference. And notice he had no idea where this wine came from. 
Instead of praising Jesus, who did the chief servant praise? He praised the groom. And I'm sure the servants were relieved and probably amazed since they knew where the wine come from. Just a few minutes ago, it was water. Now it was the best tasting wine. I'm no wine connoisseur. I've never had a taste of wine in my life. But from my understanding, fine wine takes a while to make. It can take up to three years from the planting of the vine to having the wine in the bottle as it goes through the process of of fermentation and aging. And think about this. Jesus made fine wine in an instant. There were no processes involved. Instantaneously, Jesus made aged wine. This is evidence of the creator, Jesus, controlling his creation. And the quality of the wine testifies to the extraordinary nature of what Jesus did. What's the application? Jesus saves the best for last. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? I don't have time, but Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 talks about when Jesus came, that he was the exact representation of God, and he displayed the radiance of God, showing that God saved Jesus as the best for last for us. Yes, Jesus, uh, God sent patriarchs. Yes, God sent prophets. Yes, God sent priests. Yes, God created angels. But God makes it very clear that he saved the best for last when he sent Jesus because Jesus was superior to all these things. Jesus is superior to the Jewish rituals and tradition of the Pharisees. Jesus was perfect in every way. Why? Because he was the exact representation of God. And because Jesus was perfect, he could provide purification for our sins as he was the spotless lamb who could take away the sin of the world. Jesus was God's final and ultimate answer and provision to our sin problem. And for us, Jesus is saving the best for last for us. For us as believers, we sang about it this morning, what a day that will be, or when we get to heaven, what a day that will be, that's another song, but when we get to heaven, what a day that will be. We can't imagine what heaven's going to be like. We can't imagine a place with no pain or no suffering or no tears or no darkness. We can't imagine having a body like Jesus. We can't imagine what the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be like. We can't imagine a place of perfection like heaven, which is our final destination as believers. Heaven will be like nothing we've ever seen or experienced. Jesus is saving the best for last for us. The best is yet to come. So what should our response be to this miracle? Verse 11. Jesus performed this first sign in Cain of Galilee. He displayed his glories, and his disciples believed in him. We should respond to the glory of God by placing our trust in God. John says this is the first sign of Jesus. And John prefers the word signs for the word miracle. And it's a significant display of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that we could perceive with the eyes of faith. What was the purpose of this miracle? To displace the glory of God through the power of God so those who see it may believe. This is exactly what happened. By this sign, Jesus began to reveal his glory. And even though his complete glory would not be fully revealed into the crucifixion and resurrection, every step throughout his ministry was a foreshadowing of the glory that was to come. Everything that Jesus did was pointing to the purpose of his mission that he was uniquely the Son of God. And all miracles build up to what is most important 
The most glorious work of Christ is death and resurrection. And this first miracle gives us a glimpse of what is to come. But I want you to notice, even though many experienced, only a few witnessed it. See, this was not a complete public display of the miracle of Jesus. He didn't gather everybody around and say, look at me, what I'm going to do. It was semi-public. Only Mary knew about it. Only the disciples who were Jesus saw it. Only the servants who were instructed by Jesus were part of it. And of those who witnessed it, the glory was not visible to all of them. You see, the servants saw the miracle of God, but not the glory of God. There's no indication they put their faith in Christ. But the disciples, they witnessed the glory of God. They knew Jesus was the Messiah. And what did they do? They believed in him. They put their faith in him. You see, when it comes to Jesus, we have a choice to believe or not to believe. There's no in-between. God has done and continues to do miracle after miracle after miracle. And many still do not believe. Many who see the signs and works of God today refuse to acknowledge the glory of God. They refuse to put their faith in Him, either because they missed it, or simply they refuse to believe it, or they try to explain it away. But when we see God work, and we see His glory, our only response should be one of belief and one of trust. And not only should we believe in the glory of God, we should reflect the glory of God. We should be a walking miracle of what Jesus has done in our lives as our belief in God should cause us to worship Him and live for Him and bring others to Him because they recognize the presence of God in our lives. You see, in His first miracle, Jesus demonstrated that He has the power to turn water into wine. He did something that no one else could do. He did the miraculous. And by doing the miraculous, he's validating his claim that he is God, that he is the creator, that he is the Messiah. And not only is he demonstrating his power and displaying his glory, he is making the statement that God saved the best for last. He's making the statement that he is now ushering in a new covenant, the covenant of grace that is far superior to the old covenant as the new covenant will do something the old covenant could not do. Because through this new covenant, Jesus will do something greater than transform water into wine. He will transform lives. One commentator put it, the power to change water into wine is incredible. But changing a sinner into a saint is even more incredible. And because of the new covenant in response to this miracle, we can choose to believe in Jesus and trust him with our lives like the disciples did. Or we can choose to refuse to believe in him like the servants did and act like nothing happened. My question to you this morning is, how are you going to respond to this miracle of Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we just come before you today, and we just thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your truth. And Father, I'm so thankful that you sent your son Jesus, that you saved the best for last. Father, I'm thankful that Jesus came to usher in a new covenant, the covenant of grace. Lord, that could do something that the covenant of the law could not do. Lord, it can transform our lives if we put our faith and our trust in you. Father, we thank you, Jesus, that Jesus came willingly to give his life for us, to pay the price for our sin so we can have a relationship with you. And Father, we have two choices this morning. We can either believe in this miracle and have our faith strengthened, 
or we can deny it. And Father, I pray this morning if there's someone here who's not given their life to you, I pray they would understand that, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was the Creator, he was the Messiah. And Father, I pray they would give their life to you this morning. And Father, for those of us who placed our faith and trust in you, may our faith be strengthened this morning. And Father, maybe there's something in our lives that we're struggling with that we're concerned about and we're trying to fix it ourselves. Father, may we give that to you as Mary did. Father, maybe there's some area in our lives that, that we're holding on to that we're trying to do our way. Father, may we submit to your plan for our lives. Or Father, maybe someone's here this morning and they need a miracle or they need the supernatural done in their lives and and Father, may they come and say, God, I know you can, if you will. Father, may all of us this morning think of your endless supply of love, of grace, of mercy, of faithfulness and forgiveness. And Father, we just pray that our response to this miracle would be one of belief and one of trust. Lord, work in the hearts of people this morning. It's in your name we pray. Maybe you are here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ. The only way you can experience an endless supply of the love of Jesus and have your life transformed is by giving your life to Him. Or maybe you're here this morning and given your life to Christ and life has been transformed by Jesus. Maybe there's an area in your life that you are not submitting to Jesus and Jesus is calling you to submit that to Him today. Maybe as I pray, there's a situation in your life that you're trying to fix yourself. And you need to come to this altar and just hand it over to Jesus and let him take care of it. Or maybe you need a miracle in your life today. Or maybe you know someone that needs a miracle. Maybe you need to come and pray for them. Or maybe you just need to come and thank God for who he is and what he's done. And for his love and for his grace and mercy and thank him for the new covenant. It's in your court this morning. Jesus has spoken to us through his word and through this miracle. The question is, how are you going to respond? Let's stand as we sing. And if you need to talk to me, I'll be down front.